And as we're in Philippians chapter 3, I want to remind you that the main theme in the book of Philippians is joy. So with that in mind, as you look at the book of Philippians, I want you to consider uh, the fact that so far, Paul has talked about in chapter 1, that theme is Jesus. Jesus first. He has to be first in all that we do. Matthew chapter 6, verse 33 says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Many times we're so concerned about getting things just right that we don't realize that we need to seek Jesus first, and then he will make things right. And then in chapter 2, he talks about the body, and he talks about humility, and how the body of Christ should have unity. And one of the ways that we have unity is by being humble and considering others before we consider ourselves. And so over and over again, in chapter 2, he uses the word others. And then in chapter 3, Paul's going to get a little personal with himself. He's going to talk about uh, basically how he has a past. Verse 1 through 11 is going to be about Paul's past. Verse 12 through 16 is going to be about Paul's present. And then Verse 17 through 21 is going to be about Paul's future, and he's going to apply that to how we are to live as believers. But what I want you to consider is that the Philippian church was basically a tiny version of the city of Rome. So the Philippian area there are, is in Macedonia, and it's kind of the, one of the first places that was a church planted in Eastern Europe, essentially. And so as he gets there, And he plants this church. He's planting it amongst people. Many of them know God through the Jewish religion. Uh, But some of the people are actually, it's a retirement community for Roman officials. And so they're like, tired of the city life, going to retire, and I'm going to go to this small area, and I'm going to live my life. But they're very patriotic. Think about our war vets. They come home from, from basically battling for our freedoms and for others. And then they come and they, many times when they retire, they find a quiet place to live out their retirement. So they're very patriotic, patriotic, except they're from a country that doesn't just say, hey, this is our leader. They are called to worship their leader. Caesar was a man who they were supposed to worship. And so they don't care if you um, follow other gods. They had many gods in Athens and in Rome. But if you follow Jesus, the difference between Jesus and many of the other gods that are available as far as religions are concerned in our our world is that Jesus is the one religion that says, I'm the only way. I'm the only truth. I'm the only life. Jesus didn't come with this message of just including whoever wanted to, like, just believe however you want to. He came with this message that I am God. People say that Jesus never said he was God, but he said that several times. As a matter of fact, one time he saw this man that was crippled and lame and they called Jesus to him to heal him. And Jesus said to the man, your sins are forgiven. And the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the religious elders of of Jerusalem and in uh, Judea, they were upset about it. Only God can forgive sin, right? So Jesus said something interesting to them. He said, here's the deal. Anybody can say that your sins are forgiven, but so that you will know that I have the power to forgive sins, let me heal this man, and then you'll see it. And so he says, I say to you, rise up and walk. And the man who was not able to walk 
was now able to walk. He was healed. The infirmity that kept him from walking was instantly gone. And so he stood up and proving to them, look, anybody can say your sins are forgiven, but not just anybody can heal a man. So therefore proving, since I can heal this man, so you can also know I can forgive sins because I'm God. I can make you whole. And so in the Philippian society, you have these people that are told you must worship Caesar and they're very patriotic. And we have many people in our community that are very patriotic. They're very nationalistic. And so, you know, one of the things that we got to be careful of is if we are patriotic, we need to be sure that we're not more patriotic than we are Christ followers. Because we are not a part of this world anymore. We're, we're set apart from this world. That does not mean we can't be patriotic. But it means that if Jesus calls me to a lifestyle that is actually in disagreement with my patriotism, then something's got to go. A man cannot serve two masters. You'll either hate the one and love the other or love this one and hate that one. And so think about it. If you had two jobs and you had two bosses and, and their schedule's always lined up, it's no big deal. But all of a sudden the schedule says, hey, you've got to work on this day and your other boss is already expecting you to work on that day. You have to choose who you're going to work for. And that's how it is with our allegiance to Christ. Things align with it long enough, and then something's going to cause you to say, hey, am I more interested in this, or am I devoted to following Jesus? And which one is going to take the first priority? And many times we are called to question on this. So Paul, he starts to take account of his life. And he wants the Philippian believers, take account of your lives. So verse 1 through 11 is really Paul the accountant. We're going to look at him being an accountant. But he's not going to be talking about money. He's going to be talking about affection. So in verse 1 of chapter 3, he says, Finally, my brethren. Now, before we get started, I want to point out that this is chapter 3. There are four chapters to the letter. And he says, finally. And so you think, oh, he's getting done. It's kind of like when I say, hey, we're going to close up, and then I don't. Except this word finally here means now for the rest of you. So he's not saying, finally, I'm getting ready to close. In chapter 4, he says, finally, and that's the word that means he's getting ready to close. And Paul does this many times. So chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For to me, excuse me, for me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. He says, I'm, I'm writing this thing to you because it's important. It's a warning. He says, rejoice in the Lord. Whatever you find joy in, first and foremost, find joy in Jesus. He says, rejoice in the Lord, for to me, to write the same things to you is not... He said this to them before. He says, I don't get tired of telling you this. It's the most important thing that you're going to learn from me. Rejoice in the Lord. He doesn't say rejoice in circumstances. He doesn't say rejoice in friendships. He, says, he doesn't say rejoice in your job or the things that you own. He says rejoice in... In the Lord, if there is a key that I can tell you from this entire book that will give you joy, and joy goes beyond your circumstances, when you lose your job, and it might happen in your life, if you lose your job unexpectedly, you can still have joy. You may not be happy, you may not be comfortable, but you can still have joy as long as your joy is found in the Lord. If it's found in your job, if it's found in your bottom line, your bank account that you're comfortable with, if it's found in your car never breaking down, if it's found in anything other than in Christ Jesus who never changes, then your joy can be taken from you. But if your joy is anchored 
like we were singing, in Jesus Christ, it cannot be taken. So, he says, for me to write the same things to you, in other words, to repeat this, it's not tedious, but for you, it is safe. He says, beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation. Now, (laughs) we've seen this sign in people's yards, right? Beware of dog. I saw one the other day that says, beware of dog. And then they like wrote ferocious below it. Like beware of ferocious dog. You know, to me, if you're having to beware of a dog, that's kind of implied, but maybe they had an issue. Maybe they had, you know, but, but he says, beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, and beware of the mutilation. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, there he says it again, and have no confidence in the flesh. So what is he saying? Are we missing something here? There seems to be a cultural thing going on. Well, what he says is, he's warning them to rejoice in the Lord and beware. Rejoice in the Lord, but beware of these things. And he lists out three. Dogs, evil workers, and mutilation. Now, is he talking about dogs? Is he he saying, hey, beware. I've heard in your neighborhood there's a rash of pit bulls, or whatever the dog is you see is the most ferocious. For me, it's a chow. I was, uh, my dad was at a, ho- a, a friend of his house one day, and they had this chow, and it was an older dog. Now, if you're a chow fan, I'm totally, it's okay. I'm not against chows. But he was sitting there at the table, and this chows are known for kind of turning on you, and they'll do it at all ages, never bit anybody before, and then they do it. Now, if you're a dog lover, and you say, well, it's not the dog, it's how they treat the dog, I don't know, I think there's something to the instincts, what the dogs are bred for, and all that stuff. But, that said, not all dogs are the same way. But what happened is he was sitting at the, there at the table, and this dog was huge. His name was Bear. So, I mean, that doesn't imply cuddly. It implies, like, I'm going to eat you. And so he's sitting there, and he's got his hand on his leg, and they're sitting there at the table talking. And all of a sudden, just out of nowhere, and they've been over to this house many times, and all of a sudden the dog just goes, Rawr! and dogs will do that to you. I mean, my dog snipped at my kid one time, and I said, look, Radar, those kids, I, lo- I love you, but I love them. I will end you. And I told him that, because I don't care about my dog nearly as much as I care about my children. And so that's what Paul's doing. He's warning, this, he's warning these people, look out, there's dogs. And what he's talking about, he's turning a phrase. Because the Jews would call Gentiles, they'd call them dogs. And it was a term of slander. Hey, we're better than you, you dogs. Basically, the idea is like a potlicker. You know, a dog that ra- wanders around randomly and eats stuff, eats your dog's food. And then also, a dog that wanders around randomly doesn't have the tags, but also doesn't have his shots. And those dogs, many times, we tell our kids, stay away from them. You know, and they, they kind of act funny. You don't know if they've got the mange or if they've got rabies or any of that. But you don't want your dogs rolling around playing with them because if they get bit, what are they going to do? They're going to catch a disease. And so that's what he's talking about. These dogs are actually Jude. They're they're called Judaizers. And they're folks that say, hey, in order to be saved, that's fine. Trust in Jesus. But you have to become a Jew and get circumcised like the people, the, the descendants of Abraham. They were descendants of Abraham because of blood. But to show that they were gods outwardly, they would be circumcised. That was a covenant, the old covenant of the law. And on the eighth day, they would circumcise these baby boys in the flesh, and it was a sign, my child, I'm dedicating him to the Lord. But here's the problem with circumcision. 
You can be a child of Abraham, bloodline. You can be circumcised on the eighth day, and you cannot be a child of God. Why? Because if you don't follow God, you're not his. And the same is true for our families, right? But here's the deal. In Christianity, many folks go to church every Sunday. They get baptized. They say all the right things. But they're what? And you've heard this said before. They're hypocrites. I don't want to go to church. I don't need to go to church. It's just a bunch of hypocrites. My response is always, come join us, because you're one too, I guarantee it. Because we all try to play a role. That's what the word means. It's, it's a theatrical term that means to play the part. And we can, it's very dangerous. We can even fool ourselves into thinking we're something that we're not. But Paul says, watch out for dogs. Watch out for hypocrites. And what he's talking about, he also says evil workers. People who claim to be one thing, but really inside they're wolves in sheep's clothing. He says, beware of the mutilation. He says, he's basically saying, if you're circumcised physically and you're not actually following the Lord, you've just mutilated yourself. You haven't done anything to change the inward heart. We have to be aware of that. We can many times, I can read my Bible every day and not let it affect my heart. And God's always wanting to soften and change our hearts. It's like this morning. We probably woke up with some frost on your windshield if you park outside. If we direct our attention towards the Lord... He thaws that heart. But we have to direct our attention. It's our, it's our choice to do that. This morning I went out. I saw my wife's car. It had frost on the windshield. So you know what I did? I turned that car around and faced the windshield towards, towards the sun. And then the next thing you know, it's thawed. And she can drive to church. And in the same way, we can wake up every day with a hard heart. We can read the word of God. But because our windshield's not been thawed, we can't see where we're going. We can't have eyes to see and ears to hear. And so God's always wanting to change that about us. But he says, beware of this. Just because we're believers doesn't mean we have to take in whatever people tell us. We need to test it according to the word of God and see if it's really so. I don't care if I say something every week. If you guys go home and you read your Bibles and it's not actually biblical, you need to call me out on it. Now, in this case, he's talking about people that are coming along. Basically, Paul had these people that would follow him place to place where he would plant churches. And as soon as he'd leave, he'd come in, and he would, he would be like one of those dogs. He'd start biting people, start telling them, hey, trust Jesus, but you've got to be circumcised first. You've got to do this, this, and this. And what he, what he was doing is they, as those guys would bite them, they would catch the disease of these dogs. And the de- disease was legalism. And legalism will never save you. Doing all the right things will never save you. He says, beware of dogs, evil workers. Beware of the mutilation. He says, for we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit. He says, we we can't just worship God in truth. In the spirit is the inward man. So we have to worship God inwardly as well. He says, rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. He says, don't have any confidence in the outward. Have confidence in what God is doing inside of you. And we talked about this before, that God has to work in you before he can work through you. And so we have to let him examine our hearts and change us inwardly. He says, though I, and he starts to talk about himself. Paul's not doing this to bring glory to himself, but he gives himself as an example of someone who could boast in the flesh, just like these Judaizers. He says in verse 4, Though I also might have confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, 
I even more so. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the stock of Israel, meaning that he is a descendant of Abraham. So if you can boast about that, Paul can boast about it. And then he says specifically, talks about his lineage here. I lost my place. Circumcised on the eighth day of the stock of Israel, he says, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews concerning the law, a Pharisee concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness, which is the law, blameless. So Paul looks at all the outward things he used to do before Christ. If you ever hear me say B.C., I mean before Christ. If I'm talking about something I used to do, B.C., there should be a B.C. portion in your life if you're following the Lord now. But he says, he says, if anybody could have confidence in the flesh, I was circumcised on the eighth day, which was according to the law. He says, I was of the tribe of Benjamin. Why does this matter? Well, if you've been reading the Bible with us, you know that Benjamin and Joseph were both the sons of Rachel, who was the favorite wife of Jacob. So Jacob, his name changed to Israel. He had several wives, and if you've ever read that, you're like, oh my gosh, how, many, how did God use that for good? But you see that Rachel had two sons, Joseph and Benjamin. And Abra, or excuse me, Jacob, showed, he treated them, Isaac, Jacob, yeah, Jacob traded, treated them as his favorites, right? So not only was he from the tribe of Israel, but also he was from the two favorites of Jacob himself. He says from the tribe of Benjamin. And then he says, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, and then concerning the law, a Pharisee. And in a, we kind of lose this in our, in our study of the Bible because Pharisee to us, as we've read the gospel accounts, means a hypocrite like I was describing. It means somebody that plays the part, somebody that has all these outward actions, but you know that they don't really know Jesus because they wouldn't boast all the time. They wouldn't pray on the street corner to show themselves great. They wouldn't fast so that everybody would see them. They would actually do the works of God. They would be humble in the sight of God but they're not. But before that, a Pharisee was actually a man who had dedicated to following the word of God. He knew the word of God and they made up all those rules because they didn't want to sin against God's word. And so to be a Pharisee actually didn't start with a negative connotation like we have today. It was actually a good thing. It was somebody that was like, I'm going to be set apart for the Lord and I'm going to be a part of this group, not for outward conditions, but I want to show myself to be righteous before the Lord. I want to please Him. But religion, over time, if you're not careful, becomes only about the outward, not the inward. And so he says, according to the law, I was a Pharisee concerning the law. It was a good thing. I followed it to the T. I was trying to please the Lord. And then concerning zeal, I was so zealous. He was so zealous for his outward actions that he was persecuting the church. He thought that Jesus was a blasphemer. Anybody that comes along and says they're God and forgives people's sins has to be a blasphemer. So he persecuted anybody who believed in Jesus. He says, concerning the righteousness which is found in the law, I was blameless. But later in Romans, he writes that the law could never produce righteousness. It could only show you where you were sinful. So the amazing part is that God changed his heart. But if anybody had something to boast about his outward actions, it was Paul. But then he goes on in verse 7, But the things that were gained to me, these things I have accounted as lost for Christ. 
all of these things, all these accomplishments, the stature that I had in my community, I gave it up. When I saw what Jesus had done for me, he goes on to say, yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. So he says, everything that I had stacked up, trying to prove myself, trying to live for God even, all the things I was zealous for, persecuting the church, all the stature I had in my community. Many believe that Paul was actually on the Sanhedrin Council, which was like the highest you could get in Jerusalem and in, in, in their religion. But he says, when I found out how much Jesus loved me, what he had done to give me righteousness rather than me trying to earn it on my own, I counted it as rubbish. And that word there means literally dung. I counted it as refuse. When we flushed down our toilets, that's where he counted all of his righteous acts or his righteous deeds. He says they weren't worth anything, so I tossed them. Let me ask you, are you willing to lay down your stature in the community? Are you willing to lay down uh, your financial gain? Are you willing to lay down what people think of you to, to gain Christ? Paul was willing to give those things up because he found out that they were not only just not useful, but they were rubbish. They were dung. So he says, not having my own righteousness, I found that, what he found out was that all the things we read about in verse 4 through 6, they were actually self-righteousness. Stuff he had done on his own. Self-righteousness doesn't get you to heaven. Christ's righteousness does. And so, that I may, he gave it up so that he could gain Christ. And that's what I mean by Paul being an accountant. He looked, he checked his bank account. He saw all that he had stacked up and he goes, man, I'm going to throw that out because Christ, now what he's done is he's deposited, or the financial term is he's imputed his righteousness into my account. What I thought were riches were actually bankruptcy. And so now I found out how bankrupt I am Jesus has deposited his righteousness into my account. I'm all that I will ever be now because of what he has done. So, I once was lost, but now I'm found. I once was bankrupt, but now I'm rich. He says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. So he gave up all of this so that he could know Christ. Now, this does not mean that he gave up everything that he had before so he could know about Christ because that's where we can get confused. Many times people want to read the Bible, they want to know about Christ. But the beautiful thing about our, our, our Bible that we carry with us is when we read it, it's a living word, so we don't just get to know about him. He speaks to us through, us, through it. We get to know him. We get to know him. The beautiful thing about having a cell phone is that you don't call Steve personally up and get to know about him. You get to know him. You get to talk to him. And this is basically how we get to communicate with God. Now, he does speak to us. If we're willing to listen, he will speak to us. But we always have to look at the word of God and say, is that really the Lord speaking to me or is that the enemy? But the beautiful thing about God's word is that he wants to know us and he wants to make himself known to us. 
and he already knows us. The question is, how much do you know him? Not how much do you know about him, but how much do you know him? He says, I gave all of my self-righteousness up. I tossed it in the trash, verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. He's making me new. Resurrection doesn't just happen at the point that I die and go to be with the Lord. That's resurrection. It doesn't just happen when on that day where the, the great trumpet is sounded, we call our bodies, come out of the grave and go to be with them. It doesn't happen uh, just at those points. We, we kind of think about resurrection. We think, I'm dead, now I'm risen back to life. He is currently resurrecting our lives. He is currently taking us dead in our sins and trespasses and transforming us by the renewing of our mind. In Romans 12, he actually speaks of that, where he says, <clears throat> Be no longer conformed to the image of this world, but be ye being transformed by the renewing of your minds. The idea in chapter 12, verse 1 and 2 there, he says, I beg of you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies to the Lord as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. And this is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world. Don't let it put you into its mold, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The idea is that you would continually be being transformed. Not just that you would be transformed at salvation. That was the case. Most of us would question whether or not we've even been saved. Because we're still not perfect, right? I'm not. But the beauty is, is that God is continuing to save us by transforming us. Helping us to do things that no longer have the consequences we fear. But also by transforming our, our heart and our attitudes. and our, we have different, I, I have different tastes for things than I did before Christ. I no longer want to do some of the things that I would get myself into back when I was younger. And so he says, it's your reasonable service, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. As God transforms us and he gives us a new heart and a new attitude and a new mind to do different things, the beauty is, as we prove to the world what is the good and acceptable, perfect will of God. What's God's will for me? And they'll see it in your life. They'll see you sharing your faith. They'll see you doing your job unto the Lord. They'll see you, it, it, it's, it's a testimony. As we present our bodies to God, God changes us, and we don't even realize it most of the time. I remember having a conversation just several months ago with Stacy, and he's like, yeah, but I'm, you know, and he was kind of down about himself. I go, Stacy, I can see the changes that God's made in your life. And he was like, really? Yes. And so when you see that in each other, tell each other, because we, we don't see it. It's like when your kids are growing up. People all the time are saying, Lucy's getting so big. Well, I see her every day. She looks the same size to me. But over time, they see her not as often. They see the changes. And the same is true for your new life, your new birth in Christ. God is making you new. So back here in Philippians, he says, I've given all of this up. I've flushed my bank account because of what Jesus wants to put in. That I may know him in the powers of his resurrection. And there is power. He's raising our lives. He's making them new. And here's the kicker the fellowship of his sufferings 
being conformed to his death. Wow, that's, that's an exciting thing, right? We all like to suffer. But Paul gave up all of his previous lifestyle, all of his previous accolades, all of his previous stature in his community, so that he would know him, Jesus, in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. If by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead, people that follow Jesus are persecuted in all cultures, all nations. It looks different, but all those that follow the truth and follow Jesus and and tell others that Jesus is the only way to be saved, they will suffer persecution. Jesus said that. In this life, you will suffer tribulation. But be of good courage. I've already overcome the world. So why do we think that we're not persecuted? Well, many times because we're not being martyred. In some countries, you believe in Jesus, they will lob your head off. They won't think twice. Your family will watch. And in some countries, it looks different. They'll call you a fear monger. They'll call you a racist. They'll call you a bigot. All of these things. And they'll do it because you believe in Jesus. Because there will be a bigot down the street that doesn't believe in Jesus, and they're totally fine with him. But the beauty of it is that suffering actually grows us closer to the Lord. Do you know that? We wouldn't prescribe it for ourselves, and we wouldn't prescribe it for our children. Actually, we do everything in our power to make sure they never have to suffer. But God is a good father, and yet he doesn't do that for his children. He doesn't. Now, there are times he definitely protects us from things that can harm us. I will not say that he doesn't ever do it. But I will say that a lot of the time, he allows suffering at the very least, read Job, to do something within us that grows us closer to him. Job was upright in all of his ways. He had a right heart towards God. It says that in the first few chapters. But it also says that God had to work some things out of him still. He had some dross in there. He had some nastiness that needed to be brought to the surface and pulled off the top. And so where do we find this in Scripture? Well, I, I thought of Job, but I also think of Daniel. So turn with me to Daniel. Daniel's writing the the testimony of when his friends were living in a society that called them to worship their king. If you remember the story, Nebuchadnezzar built up this big, huge idol. They called it a statue, but it was an idol. It was an object of worship. It was made out of precious gold, and it had clay, and it had all these things. But it was built up, and then basically Nebuchadnezzar and his people said, we're going to sound all these musical instruments. And at that time, everybody has to stop what they're doing, turn towards this statue, bow down, and worship Nebuchadnezzar. Well, this is a simple one. God says, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not worship anyone but the Lord your God, right? So it's like top 10 stuff. Well, here these Hebrews are in this foreign land in Babylon. And if they don't worship him, here's the consequence. You will be thrown into the fiery furnace. And so everyone bows down as soon as all the music happens, except for three guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, which is their Babylonian names, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. That was their Hebrew names. And so these three men had a decision to make. They could either go with the culture and do what they were told, or they could bow down. Well, surely God wouldn't want me to die 
because then I can't share my faith, right? Then I'm muted completely. If I, sh- if, I, if I don't bow down to this man, then I will be put to death, and therefore my life has no purpose anymore, right? That's kind of the lie that Satan will give you. Surely God wouldn't want you to die. Except here's the deal. He sent his son, and his will for his son's life was to die and suffer and prove what is that good and acceptable will of God. So, here these three guys are, young men. And God allows this situation, and what they say is, we will not bow. So then the king's servants come to him, and they go, hey, these three Hebrew boys, these guys, they won't bow down to your statue. You need to have a talk with them. So he brings them up. And basically, Nebuchadnezzar says, hey, I'll give you one more shot. We're going to sound the instruments. Everybody's going to bow down. You better join them. Or I'll toss you in the fiery furnace. Well, at that point, they again have to make the decision. Do I follow the true and living God or do I worship an idol and compromise? And we all know what happened. They would not bow. And because they did not bow, it made the king not only mad but furious. And so he ramped up the heat in the fiery furnace that he had so much that when the, the king's servants threw Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael into the oven, it killed the servants. That's how mad he was. What a great guy to follow, right? You're expendable. We don't care about you, right? So then he throws them in there. Interesting enough, those three men are standing in there. And the king looks in there, and he sees these three guys, but he doesn't just see three. He goes, didn't we throw three Hebrew boys in there? He says, yes. Well, I see four, and one looks like the son of man. So the three men, while they're in there, their clothes were never burned, but the ropes that tied them down, their bondage, was removed, and Jesus was with them. So suffering in our life, though we want to avoid it, when we do, sometimes we avoid what God wants to use to remove with the thing that binds us down and causes us to have fear and worry and anxiety. God wants to get rid of that in us. And when we go into the fiery furnace, something we need to remember is that we get to know him in a new way. Because Paul said, I gave up everything from my past life so that I could know Christ and the power of his resurrection, but also that I might know him in the fellowship of, of suffering. Fellowship, that word, it's kind of a churchy word. It just means to have in common. We can have suffering in common with Jesus. He suffered for us, and we get to suffer for his namesake. And when we do so, he doesn't leave us or forsake us. He's with us in it. We get to know him more personally. And I think about the few times, and there have been very few, but there have been some where I suffered in some way, or I was forsaken by my family because of my faith in Christ. And every time it happened, I was like, Lord, what are you doing? And when I came out of the suffering, I knew the Lord more. And so part of me goes, don't pray for suffering. The other part of me goes, man, it's sweet. I know Jesus, but man, coming through that, I know him so much more. And I'm, it's, it's an intimate thing. I can't explain it if you've never been through it. But don't be afraid of suffering. Have joy. Now, you don't have to be thankful for suffering, but when you come out the other side, I promise you, and that's what Paul's saying, you'll get to know Christ in a new and a deeper way. And the beauty is, is that you'll come out trusting him even more, just like these men did. I'm sorry I had you turn there and then I didn't even read it. 
So he says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death if by any means I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So that's Paul the accountant. He says, I've counted everything a loss as refuse so that I may gain Christ. What are you holding on to that's keeping you from gaining more of Christ? What is it? What is the thing or the things that you're holding on to that you can never keep and missing out what you can gain in Christ? Now, you might be saved. I'm not saying that. I'm not talking about salvation. I'm talking about a deeper relationship with Jesus that he wants for each one of you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I, I, I know many times I've heard folks ask, why does God allow suffering? I thank you for it being in the word. The answer is there. Father, this book is about joy. And my first question became, how can you have joy in suffering? And yet you're showing me, and I hope you've showed everyone here today, that suffering is many times very useful. I thank you that it produces patience and hope that does not disappoint because it's hope that it can only be had in Christ. When our affection, when our hope, when our peace, when our joy is found in you, Lord, and you do not change, it can't be taken from us. So Father, give us joy. I do not pray for suffering for anyone here, but Father, I do pray that your will would be done in each one of our lives. And as we live for you, as we suffer persecution, maybe somebody might disagree with us. Lord, give us boldness anyway. Help us to trust you with our words. When you call us to speak and to share Jesus with others, Lord, help us to be bold. Help us not to be afraid. Give us the joy that you promise when we just allow you to use us, whether it's our words, our actions, whatever it is, Lord. Be glorified in us. Paul said to live is Christ and to die is gain. But it's much more better if we stay here, even if it might be suffering, so that we can continue to pour into others and show them Jesus. So Father, help us to live that way. We love you. We thank you for this word. And we pray, uh, be glorified in us this week. In Jesus' name, amen.